I'll return to my, you know, original <laughs> suggestion of just hopefully, you know, listeners or other folks that I certainly talk with in my day to day, just having a better understanding of HIPAA's scope to start and then understanding the risks of certain behaviors because we live our lives online and there's certain risks that are unavoidable or that are manageable relative to the benefit that a consumer might get from it. So I think ultimately, while it's not the consumer's responsibility, an informed consumer can make the best choices about what kind of risks to take online. This is Lock and Code a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024 and welcome to, I can't believe I'm saying this, season five of Lock and Code. Our main story today is about genetic privacy. On October 1st of 2023, on a hacking website called Breach Forums, a group of cybercriminals offered a glimpse into the latest explosive haul of stolen data that they would soon put up for sale. Individual profiles for users of the genetic testing company 23andMe. 23andMe offers direct-to-consumer genetic testing kits that provide customers with different types of information, including potential indicators of health risks, along with reports that detail a person's heritage, uh, their DNA's geographical footprint, and if they opt in, a service to connect with relatives who have also used 23andMe's DNA testing service. The data that the company collects is often seen as some of the most sensitive personal information that exists about us today. And it has been used not only to map out family trees, trace ancestral lineages, and even find long-lost cousins, but also to exonerate the wrongfully accused and to catch killers. In 2018, deputies from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department arrested a serial killer known as the Golden State Killer after investigators took DNA left at decades-old crime scenes and compared it to a then-growing database of genetic information, essentially finding the Golden State Killer's relatives and then zeroing in from there. Now, that's an example of this type of data solving crimes, but what happens when the data is part of a crime? What law enforcement agency, if any, gets involved? What rights do you as a consumer have, and how likely are you to get anywhere with your complaints? For customers of 23andMe, those are particularly relevant questions right now. After an internal investigation and some back-and-forth disclosures from the genetic testing company itself, it was eventually revealed that 6.9 million customers were impacted by the breach. What do they do? Today, to help us understand the value of genetic data, the protections we have as consumers, and what law enforcement and criminals can do with this data. We're speaking with Suzanne Bernstein, a law fellow with Electronic Privacy Information Center, also known as EPIC. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. 
yeah, we're so happy to have you here. This is a topic that, surprisingly enough, we have not covered. I like to think that we're an online privacy and cybersecurity podcast, but then you have blind spots. So anyways, let's address those blind spots. Let's talk about something that has been around for a bit that people look to as even a holiday gift uh, is a genetic testing kit. I see it on gift guides. And then I also see data privacy implications almost every month uh, in the news about this stuff. So we have a lot to talk about. Let's get right into it. And so I wanted to start again with, like I said at the top of the show, with the recent hack of 23andMe and the growing interest from law enforcement to use like genetic data to solve decades old crimes. I just want to start really broad here and understand what is the value of genetic data? Sure. So that's a great question. I think it's important even for a broader context to consider genetic data in two different contexts. The first being within a context covered by HIPAA. So HIPAA is a, is a privacy, it's a really a portability law, but we in America understand it as one of the only strong privacy laws, but its scope is narrow. It only covers certain hospital settings or related hospital settings, information that you know is only there or, or related to an insurance company. So a lot of genetic testing that happens in the hospital is covered by HIPAA, whereas this new, relatively newer burgeoning field of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, which includes 23andMe, falls outside of HIPAA's scope. And the reason why I start with that distinction is because, first off, it's a something that most Americans, to no fault of their own, wouldn't really realize. I think because HIPAA is one of the most recognizable privacy laws we have, in absence of a comprehensive federal privacy law. People sign the HIPAA form when you go to the doctor, they know what it is. And then there's this assumption that any other information collection that's health related would just be covered by HIPAA. When in reality, these direct to consumer genetic testing falls outside of HIPAA. And it can be for many reasons. It can be for certainly understanding ancestry, but it could be carrier screening, health risks, cancer predisposition tests, there's many different reasons why people do this, and it can be a very interesting and useful tool. I think now, certainly with this 23andMe data leak and, and the data security issues related to it, people are becoming more aware of the risk associated with direct-to-consumer genetic testing. I wanted to try and zoom out and help folks understand why genetic data is valuable, like why people would want it. Uh, and I mean that because I think a lot of our listeners understand, okay, like I can't have my credit card information just out there in cyberspace. That's dangerous. I can't have my social security number out there in cyberspace. But why is that data different than my DNA? How are those things different? Should we approach them differently? I, again, just kind of understanding what's the difference between those two subsets of data? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what's similar is that those types of data, they reveal sensitive identifying information, right? And so the first thing to start with is that, you know, in America, we should have a privacy protections in, in the digital age. And I'll always, you know, start off saying that. And what's interesting, I think, about this genetic information is certainly the information itself is like a social security number. It's only your, you know, genetic information. It's identifying that way but also the inferences that can be drawn from that information can be very sensitive and it can impact certain things that you may not even notice. So there's a sense of in a commercial setting, I can speak to the law enforcement setting a bit, but in a commercial setting, when this information is shared, sold, retained, it can be 
part of large data sets and profiles that are built about consumers. This is in a broader commercial surveillance ecosystem to think about it that way. And data brokers buy, sell, compile these profiles that then can be used to impact consumer choice and autonomy. There's maybe certain inferences made about you and your profile that impact whether or not certain ads are shown to you online or not shown to you. So there's that's the opportunity loss. And aside from that autonomy issue, there are reputational damage that could happen if your health information that is inferred or implied or directly explained through your genetic information can cause reputational damage or can't be managed as much if information that you thought and that was promised to you would be private through these companies is in this ether in the profiles being built about you and whatnot. So I think in the commercial setting, there's, there's a lot of those harms and injuries and risks. And I think in the law enforcement setting, to the extent that it's similar, law enforcement can and does purchase information from data brokers, right? So the similar risks exist there. And in different health contexts, that could mean different things. Like maybe this information is used to help solve a crime in some way, but also currently there's location data and other surveillance data in the reproductive health context that's being used by law enforcement um, in ways to criminalize people getting healthcare. So this lack of control, certainly, of what happens downstream with your information, those risks are only heightened when the information is so sensitive. There are so many things I want to get into. This is great. <laughs> um, but I want to focus on, like you said, the commercial setting. And I know you already mentioned it a bit, but let's take the opportunity to dive in. What can these companies do with my data? Let's say I took a genetic testing kit with one of these companies, uh, not to name and shame any of them, right? But let's say I do it, I send it in. What can they do with my data? You touched a bit on, you know, like they can build profiles on me, then those profiles can be used for like targeting ads, which is insane to me. But let's really, uh, again, just kind of tunnel down on it. What can they do with my data? Well, what's interesting is most, if you, if you read the disclosures, which again, many consumers don't, don't fully read, you know, including <laughs> right. myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah, same. There are promises that these companies make to consumers typically, you know, like for example, we won't use your data for advertising and we will keep this safe. Or sometimes there's some data minimization baked in where they'll say, we'll only use your information for what in the scope of what you might expect. So I think the first step is realizing that, you know, there's no comprehensive federal privacy law to dictate what happens, no use or purpose limitations here. But once a company makes a promise and they break that promise, so a lot of the FTC's Section 5 deceptiveness um, cases in this context have come from, you know, what's called a broken promises theory. A company says, we have your data and we're, we promise to keep it safe and not share it with third parties. And then if it's found that they do the opposite, then typically a, the FTC will bring a Section 5 deceptiveness claim, which is distinct from an unfairness one, but it's what's been used most in these data security contexts. And in the past year, I guess, year or two, there's been four or five different uh, enforcement actions brought by the FTC just in this context of better help and good RX, which you know I can go into. But the idea that these companies made promises not to share sensitive information with third parties, which can certainly mean data brokers and, and advertisers, but it could also mean any third party. And then they go against that. That's where the FTC will get involved. And their other authority they use is called the health breach notification rule, which 
uh, requires certain breach notifications to be sent to consumers based on the kind of information that was accessed in an unauthorized way and the, the potential damage. And if the companies don't do that, then the FTC can bring another enforcement action. So that's kind of what the FTC can do if promises aren't kept. But otherwise, there's only so much you know a consumer can do to protect themselves outside of trusting that this company will say, will protect their information like they promised to. Whenever we talk about this topic, I also like immediately think about, right, like it's genetic information and it's often used sometimes to say that you might have these indicators of risk like cancer or other, you know, illnesses. And I immediately think about insurance, like health insurance. And one of my biggest questions is always like, will this hike up my rates, right? Like I know that's like the simple version of it, but is there a world in which these companies can collect my data and then that data can be shared with health insurance companies, and then that can impact my insurance in any way. Does such a data machinery exist for that to occur, either in some dystopian world or in the world we live in today? Yes, short answer, yes, might feel dystopian, <laughs> and it also is real. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what's, and I'm not an expert in insurance or in evaluating different insurance packages, but None I- None of us are, none of us yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll just put that disclaimer, but there has been, there has been research and reporting around how the information that data brokers collect, analyze, and compile, whether that's into different forms or individual profiles, how those can be- used or accessed by insurance companies, certainly, in determining benefits or rates. And I think to bring in everyone's favorite term, AI, um, into this conversation, (laughs) it also depends what, if an insurance company is using an automated decision-making system or model or algorithm to think about patient risk and, and insurance rates, it's totally plausible that you don't know what that model is being trained on. You know, that information could be also from data brokers, also from whether it's from a leak or a security breach from one of these companies, or it could be from these companies sharing or selling that information for advertising purposes, which they might do. There's not much regulatory action in the data broker space. And so that's, I think, a key like linchpin between a lot of these different ideas about how our personal information gets into certain places in certain contexts is about data brokers too. That's a big part of the conversation. I also thought it was important to just talk about how this data, as you mentioned, is sensitive. The uh, revelation of illnesses you have, or even just the connections you have with relatives, that itself in a cyber criminal sense can be used for extortion. And it wasn't very long ago that things like whether or not someone was HIV positive, also even before that, whether or not someone had cancer, that those were considered to potentially be embarrassing facts. I think the cancer one is pretty eye-opening. This is something I learned about when I was actually in grad school, that it was considered embarrassing. It was considered like not something that should be published because that's like a private fact. Now, I think we rightfully see cancer patients as like, there's no shame in that. That's... um. Like, we are sorry that you have that, but there's no, like, oh my goodness, like, judgment. That's dreadful. That is not true about HIV. Uh, We still have that in many parts of the world. And so this type of information can reveal that, and there are things for which we are very private about, things that for which, even if it is not in the eyes of the public, filled with judgment, 
there are things that, like, hey, I just don't want people to know. Like, I don't care if there's no judgment associated with, like, I don't know, high blood pressure, right? But I still don't want the world knowing it about me. Like, hey, let's still have some things that are closed off. And I think this information is valuable in that sense, in that it is a part of us that we simply want to keep private. I think that's also just something that we have to kind of address that, like, it should be protected. When these companies say that they'll protect it in certain ways and it isn't protected, that's also the risk. I mean, you mentioned that there have been five, uh, roughly five enforcement actions from the FTC. That isn't a lot, actually, when I look back on it. That's not a high number for the number of users that are involved. It seems like we're, we're being asked to trust companies, as is always the case. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And I think your distinction of sensitive data, there's a history of that kind of data being used to really target people in awful ways. And, and that's not a new concept. And we see though in, as our lives are, are so, are lived so much online and the data extraction from our everyday use continues to climb in proposed legislation and, and current laws, this distinction between personal data and sensitive data continues to be written into proposed laws. Like in the, so the American Data Privacy Protection Act, which is still in the House Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, it's been proposed as a comprehensive privacy law. It mirrors some other laws in distinguishing, let's say, what you had for lunch today versus whether it's health information, biometric information. This includes financial information, certainly sexual orientation and things related to sexual health, or sometimes it's your union membership or your race or certainly privacy for minors, which is another huge, huge field that folks are trying to get some movement on in the privacy world. I think all of these, what you identified is that all these contexts share a higher risk of, certainly it can be a reputational embarrassment issue, but also a higher risk of extortion, things like that, if this information is released and just an idea at base that an American and someone, you know, living here should be able to keep these details of their lives private while still engaging in our digital world. I think it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about the enforcement around companies and the engagement that consumers have with companies. But something that is such an easy question that I sometimes forget to ask it is, what can I do? And we touched on it a little bit. You said, hey, there's not a lot that you can do if you're a consumer and a company has lied about the way that they protect your data or share your data, collect uh, all those things. But more broadly, let's say I'm a customer. And I learn, like I learned that through the reporting, through news, that there was a breach and my data may have been impacted. Okay, now what? Like, what can I honestly do in a situation like that? Unfortunately, not not much, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so important that, and it's it shouldn't be, you know, underestimated how important it is to just know that your data has been accessed or influenced so that if you may be prepared to take next steps if, if you need to. I think... You know, I have family and friends who will ask this question in a general sense. And I think in the context of health data and certainly genetic information, and I, I know I've really uh, talked about this a lot at the top, but I really think just at base, having an understanding of what your expectations are in terms of having any HIPAA protection and not is important. And that's what I kind of say among this broader conversation that there's not not much individual consumers can do, that this is a systemic issue reinforced by different power and information asymmetries and many different reinforced patterns in our in this ecosystem. I think as a consumer, just understanding the risks of 
sharing this kind of information. Let's say there's a, an opportunity, if you feel more comfortable to do it in a hospital setting or related to insurance where it might be covered by HIPAA, that's something to, to think about. But I, that's why I, I don't gloss over this first step of just raising consumer literacy about what is covered by HIPAA and what's not. Because, you know, for better or for worse, Americans know what HIPAA is because they have to sign the forms when they go to the doctor. So I think that's important. And I think I'll always plug to call your representatives and and, oh, yeah. and senators and try to get some comprehensive privacy protections passed. But unfortunately, it's really hard to wrap your mind around the systemic impact of these decades long power and information asymmetries that maintain this system of data extraction with like little to no friction because there's not much consumer autonomy here. I love this idea of health insurance companies like Kaiser over here in California and like Blue Shield, Blue Cross, all these like suddenly developing like a consumer focused website that's just like competing, like competing with 23andMe <laughs> and just saying like, oh no, you can get it here. And it's covered by insurance and it's protected right. because <laughs> we're like legally bound to protect it. Um, <laughs> it's just this funny like idea of like, what if health insurance was competitive with a direct to consumer product? And it's so, I don't like that we live in the world where that's exciting. Right, <laughs> um, right. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But such is, you know, such is how it goes. I wanted to briefly visit another section of this conversation, right? We've talked a lot about the corporate sector. And so I wanted to touch a little bit on government and broadly, what can the government do with this information? But more specifically, what can law enforcement do with my genetic data? I think the interesting aspect that I can maybe shine a bit more of a light on is the standards through which law enforcement can access this information. And so there's the idea that there's different levels within criminal law, criminal procedure standard. There's a subpoena, which doesn't require judicial oversight, asking for records. And then there's what's called more of a warrant requirement, where law enforcement would have to be, you know, be under judicial oversight and state some probable cause that what they're looking for, what they want to seek with the records they want to obtain, contain something related to a crime. And so at Epic, we've pushed the Health and Human Services organization to bump things up to a warrant requirement in terms of looking for reproductive health information. And, you know, an idea could be to extend that to genetic information. Like, I think there's ways in which HIPAA or, you know, other existing laws can be modified to heighten these standards to come in line with other, you know, Fourth Amendment standards. I wanted to steer the conversation to, like, the protections we have. And I feel like most of the conversation has been like, we don't have a lot. But <laughs> it is a good moment to just ask that kind of broadly and, and directly. What statewide or federal protections do we have for our genetic data? What's important to understand about these more comprehensive privacy laws that have been proposed on the federal level, but that have passed in various states on the state level, is that they include protections for, even if it doesn't say genetic health data specifically, it will protect consumer data from certain uses or sharing in certain ways. At Epic, we've advocated for a data minimization principles, you know, saying to regulating companies that they must only collect information that's necessary or strictly necessary, depending on the kind of information, 
for the purpose that it was collected for. And that is connected to data security because the more data a company extracts, the longer they retain it, the higher the risk for data security issues. First off, understanding that this health and genetic information, our protections are, you know, in these comprehensive bills, even if they're not explicitly named is important. And the second layer I'll add, kind of similar to what I mentioned before, is that in some of these laws, there are heightened protections for sensitive data as opposed to just personal data. And genetic information, health information would certainly fall into that sensitive data category. How do those efforts look, right? I understand that's a loaded question, um, but how does it look in terms of like actually having things pass in the coming years? I say that it's a loaded question because having worked on data privacy just broadly, there are state laws and there's always been like a sort of an appetite for a federal law, but then it never like comes to pass. And so when people would ask me like, oh, like, are we going to get it? I always feel like, I can't answer that. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it depends on the mood and the tenor of any given Congress on every any given night, you know? But what is the outlook on statewide genetic privacy laws? Are we going to get more, uh, do we think? And then also on federal? I think on the state level, I mean, right now there's a dozen state privacy laws. And when I say that, I mean privacy laws in various states that are comprehensive privacy laws. So it might be titled the California Consumer Privacy Act or the Iowa Consumer Data Protection Act. Those are more comprehensive and some of them have not gone into effect yet, but they've been passed into law. Um, and so I think that trend is, I mean, that's a lot of states and that's certainly putting pressure on the federal level because, you know, not only is it strange to regulate this kind of information flow on the state level where, you know, data doesn't care about borders, but it's very burdensome for compliance you know, the business community, industry, tech community also uh, would like a federal privacy law. And I think in terms of specifically genetic data, I'm so curious to see what will happen with the Washington My Health, My Data Act, and if there will be more specifically health-related health data or genetic data privacy laws that, that are enacted after that. It was interesting after Illinois has had their biometric privacy law on the books for a while now. And it was interesting, you know, not to see other states <laughs> do, you know, follow suit. Uh, but, yeah. you know, we have this Washington law and that will be certainly very interesting to follow. You know, Amazon is, you know, they acquired One Medical and they're in Washington. So, you know, maybe that'll be an impact. And, and Google recently changed their location data policy perhaps in, in anticipation of, not sure, you know, it's just my speculation, but yeah, yeah. of compliance with that law or, or laws in the future. And so maybe there'll be a trend in, in these health laws, but I think right now there's certainly been momentum for comprehensive privacy laws on the state level. On the Illinois biomedical information privacy law. Yes, biometric. Biometric. I think it's really interesting. One of the ways to kind of like make that really legible for the listeners. Uh, there's a law only in Illinois, <laughs> from my understanding, yeah. that protects things like fingerprints and retina scans. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, biometric information is, it could be fingerprints, it could be retina scans, it could even be heat maps from your body that, you know, it's your face scanning as well. I know there's also been a rise in, uh, in kind of facial recognition technology, emotion detection. Um, it's information that your body gives off that is identifiable. That's kind of the easy definition for biometric. Yeah, I used to be a legal affairs reporter. And so I would cover like court cases and I would cover lawsuits against tech companies because mm -hmm. I'm over here in California. And 
when Facebook first started to reveal that it could predict who a person was in a photo because it would recommend, would you like to tag David in this photo? Right, I remember that. Yeah, we saw an enormous burst of lawsuits against Facebook only in Illinois, right? Because they alleged that Facebook had violated that state's biometric information uh, law. And I thought it was super interesting that, oh, only Illinois cares about this. And there were so many lawsuits about it. And it's just one of these really interesting things where you see how a law in a state can produce so many lawsuits and so much, I guess, I don't want to call it headache, um, because that kind of like discounts the severity of it. Um, but you were talking about how the compliance issues uh, for companies can be burdensome enough that they want to standardize something. And I always love thinking of Illinois as this like thorn in every company's <laughs> side uh, that it's like, oh, that's right. We forgot. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about Illinois and about this new law in Washington, and you touched on this implicitly, but I'll, I'll make it explicit. These, yeah, yeah, these yeah. laws allow for what's called a private right of action. So that you can sue under this law and not every one of these laws I've been talking about, you know, on the state level, these other comprehensive laws, not all of them have a private right of action. So that means that if you're harmed as a consumer, the attorney general might have to bring a lawsuit in your place, or maybe there's an enforcement action coming from a data privacy agency on the state level, as opposed to, you know, an individual lawsuit or a lawsuit from an AG. So I think it's interesting to think about definitely conversations in the advocacy world about the efficacy of these different kinds of laws. And and certainly one thing that you <laughs> explain really well is that there's the volume of lawsuits that can come from enabling or allowing a private right of action, how that may impact business decisions, business practices. So that's, I just, I, I wanted to reiterate that based on what you said. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a, good, a really good way to, to explain something that not a lot of people see, right? It's mm. not something that we're ever really privy to this information, but it is out there. I did want to talk about what the world would look like in the future without robust like genetic data privacy protections or, or laws. And so a, a little bit of this is like, it's not fear mongering, right? Because a lot of it's already happening. Um, but <laughs> I do want to know, what are some of the worst abuses that could happen with our data if robust protections are not given to us in the next 10 or even 20 years? Oh, I think a lot of what you mentioned about reputational damage and different kinds of, it could be loss of life, loss of liberty, you know, from that kind of information being spread without someone wanting that to be out there. I think the other thing that may seem less flagrant, but really impacts people's quality of life is the idea of some opportunity loss from this information being out there. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're based on this leak of genetic information that was identifiable, some character trait of yours is identified or inferred from there. And, and that went on, maybe that you're a woman or that you're 45 or that you live in a certain state or that you are susceptible to diabetes, you know, any of those kinds of things. Let's say that makes that any of that information makes it into a larger profile that's being sold or shared to maybe let's say advertisers, right? And so without realizing it, you don't realize that that information impacted whether or not on Google or Facebook when you're logging on, whether or not an advertisement was shown to you that there is 
an apartment nearby that you might want otherwise want to live in, or that there is a job opportunity that you might be interested in, but based on what the advertiser wanted and based on what you didn't even realize was in the profile about you, maybe that opportunity isn't presented to you. So that was a long way of saying that some of these harms that we think about you know, are really palatable and in your face, like this big reputational damage, right? But the other more implicit and also very harmful impacts of this unregulated commercial surveillance system and and profiling and, you know, behavioral or targeted advertising at times is sometimes the idea of an opportunity loss that you don't, you know, even realize is happening. I hadn't thought of that at all, honestly. Um, We so frequently think of consequences as sort of like punishments or or Mm. things things yeah things that are like doled out upon us and instead there's obviously this angle here of no no no, like the consequences an opportunity removed that is invisible to us and i had not thought of that that's um equally terrifying (laughs) (laughs) no sorry i didn't mean to out scare you but it's i mean that's that's also what's i think is interesting about this area you know as i've worked in it and doing more research and i think it's the idea that these systems are also designed so that you don't know about it unless someone thinks about or talks to you like it's on purpose you know that it does that it seems like the things that are offered to you are like oh you know this makes sense but it's based on these profiles that are built yeah i wanted to wrap up here with our last question we've talked so much around this idea of when you know one of these companies commits wrongdoing or, or doesn't protect our data the way they're supposed to so much of the conversation interestingly has focused on like what do i do as a consumer okay what do i do do i go with uh, genetic testing through my health insurance provider um do i like lock down this but i think it's odd that every time we have these kinds of conversations it comes back to me the consumer what do i do and instead i want to just ask Whose responsibility actually is it to protect this data? I think it's the companies that collect this data. It's They have more of an ability to protect it. I think there's responsibility all, all around, but they have an ability to limit the amount of data that they need to collect to perform the service the consumer is asking for. And they have the you know ultimate ability to maintain high data security standards. And so it's their responsibility to do that too. And I think it can be a responsibility of the government to implement those standards if, you know, I, I think we've observed that self-regulation is really working. And we use these terms power asymmetry or information asymmetry. And it's just the asymmetric aspect of all these transactions is very loud. And once you start to notice it, you'll notice it everywhere. You know, the idea that one side not just has the ability to do more things, but they have so much more knowledge of what data is being collected, what's happening once it's been, you know, collected. And a consumer, you know, is kind of left out in the dark. So I'll return to my, you know, original (laughs) suggestion of just hopefully, you know, listeners or other folks that I certainly talk with in my day to day, just having a better understanding of HIPAA scope to start. And then, understanding the risks of certain behaviors because we live our lives online and there's certain risks that are unavoidable or that are manageable relative to the benefit that a consumer might get from it. So I think ultimately, while it's not the consumer's responsibility, an informed consumer can make the best choices about what kind of risks to take online. 
that's kind of the the most optimistic I can I can be about <laughs> about the scenario. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I can't offer more, but <laughs> working on it. I completely understand it. It is something that is uh, unfortunately like the pitch down the middle, right? That there's only so much that a consumer can do and we can recognize that there are responsibilities put upon the companies that collect it and the governments that should be enforcing it. And at the same time, it is better to be informed about these things. We still need the information to act in the best, most manageable way possible, despite, like I said, vast asymmetries in power and information. It's just, I'm sorry, that is, um, that could be the name of the show, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> being I like informed. the name of the show. It's better to put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to, okay, so we're not going to change it for the next season. It won't become <laughs> being an informed consumer within asymmetrical powers uh, um, <laughs> uh, systems in the United States. Uh, so that is good. I'm glad. Uh, I don't think it was going to, it was going to clear with like my boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Suzanne, I wanted to just thank you again for coming on today's show and for diving into this topic which is uh, extremely important and reveals sensitive information and yet at the same time it feels like we are being kept out of at the same time so again thank you for coming on today's show thanks for having me i appreciate it to our listeners we'll talk to you again in two weeks until then stay tuned and stay safe and remember you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on malwarebytes labs at malwarebytes.com blog Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. Thank you.